Well, good evening, everyone. You can turn with me your Bibles to the prophet Hosea, chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 this evening, but I will read chapter 5 all the way to chapter 6, verse 3, uh, to set the context. So we're going to read all of chapter 5 all the way uh, to verse 3 of chapter 6. Hosea 5, begin reading at verse 1. Hear this, O priests, take heed, O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king. For yours is the judgment, because you've been a snare to Mizpah, a net spread on Tabor. The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, though I rebuke them all. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you commit harlotry. Israel is defiled. They do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God, for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they do not know the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also stumbles with them. With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They have dealt treacherously with the Lord, for they have begotten pagan children. Now a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud at Beth-Avon. Look behind you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept. Therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. Yet he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place, till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction they will earnestly seek me. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. Amen. Well, let us pray. O Lord our God, we are thankful for the fulfillment of your promises. Thank you that Jesus Christ is the one who was raised on that third day. And thank you because of his rising. Thank you that as he is that first fruits of the resurrection of the dead, your people can be assured that though we die, we shall be raised. And thank you for that promise that Christ will raise his people up on that last day. And so may we take great comfort in this. Though we might still die, we have great assurance of what awaits us. And we pray that you'd help us to wait patiently. Help us to wait as we uh, walk in this world, as we are exiles in this land, and we long for our home and long for heaven. 
And as we have returned to you by faith, and as we have turned from our idols to the true and living God, we ask and pray that we would know you. We ask and pray that we would know the things that are pleasing unto you. We ask and pray that we would be a people that loves to pursue the knowledge of God, the truth of the scriptures, read good theology, that we might know what pleases you and how we ought to live in a way that is honoring to you. And we're thankful that you've given to us your word to help us with this. Thank you that you've sent forth your spirit to give us that illumination. And we ask again, you would send forth your spirit upon us this night. We ask and pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the difficult things that are found in this word. Yet we are thankful for the encouraging things that are found in it as well. And so we know that you're the one who uh, works through broken jars of clay. And we pray that your glory would shine forth. We pray that you would be the one who is honored and glorified this night. We pray that you would do so through the edifying of your people, the building up of your church. We also pray that you be honored and glorified through the salvation of sinners as well. We thank you for this privilege to be in your house this night. Help us to be appreciative. Help us to worship. Help us to be awake and attentive. And we pray that you'd help us now by your spirit. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, there are some important truths that we confess often concerning the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And one thing that we often confess is concerning his cross work, how he descended uh, from David according to the flesh, how he suffered under Pontius Pilate, how he was crucified, died, buried. And then all the creeds, the major creeds say the third day he was resurrected. The third day he rose again from the scriptures. And that's an important truth that we all know well. It was on that third day. One thing I found very surprising as we were study, as I was studying Hosea is that there's only one prophecy that mentions the being raised up on that third day. And that comes from Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. There are other mentions of third day, like in Jonah and Jonah being in the belly of the beast. But there is one prophecy, explicit prophecy, it mentions on that third day, he will raise us up. So I found that a bit surprising. And we see that here for us this night. And I'm giving it all away. It's referring to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he does in his resurrection from the dead. But what makes this prophecy even more surprising is how often and how recently the prophet Hosea has talked about desolation, how he's talked about idolatry, how he's talked about the wickedness of the people of Israel, how they they pursued the Baals, how they've engaged in actual harlotry, and they've engaged in spiritual harlotry. He's talked about how he's going to tear. He's talked about how no one shall rescue them. It is going to be Yahweh who does these things as he brings judgment upon the old covenant people. But then there is a comforting word that starts with verse 15 of chapter 5. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face in their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. The people of Israel must be sent into exile before this promise of revival is fulfilled. And that is a comfort for the people of God. That is a comfort and a promise that the remnant needs. The true people of God under that old covenant, as they've seen all the wickedness that has occurred, as they've seen the spiritual adultery, there's 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. They need to be reminded. They need to have encouragement. And here is this comforting prophecy that Yahweh gives. It's very stark, isn't it, in the book of Hosea. We see what 
Israel does, their wickedness, their harlotry. But then there's these comforting words of assurance, comforting words of promise concerning what the Lord will do to such undeserving people. Now, remember the prophet Hosea, he prophesied to the northern kingdom under the time of the divided kingdom, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. It's around the 8th century B.C. Uh, And he's prophesying against, as I said, the northern kingdom, Israel. And remember that northern kingdom, there was no one who did right. There was no king who did right in the sight of God. They all did evil. All the kings that you read about concerning the northern kings, they all did evil in the sight of God of the Lord. And the main idea of the book of Hosea is seen in Hosea's marriage to Gomer. That is, Hosea's marriage is a picture of Israel's spiritual adultery and what Yahweh will do both in judgment to his wayward wife, but also what he will do with restoration of his wayward wife as well. And the section we are in focuses on waiting for repentance, waiting for that change of mind, waiting for that turn from their idols to the true and living God. And we've seen a lot of oracles of doom. We've seen a lot of prophecies about destruction. And yet we come to this oracle now about repentance. And then we see here Yahweh, or the prophet Hosea, Yahweh through the prophet, is using what's called prophetic idiom. He's using old covenant language, language they would have understood to help them understand something about what the new covenant would be like. Old covenant language to describe new covenant Realities, And we also see a lot of reversal here in verses 1 through 3 uh, with what we saw in chapter 5. And so a lot of encouragement uh, through this call, through this oracle, through this prophecy. But there is a problem that we see in these verses. And that's the problem of waiting. There's a lot of encouragement here. Resurrection, you shall be revived. But there's going to be a lot of waiting that is involved. The faithful remnant was waiting for the first coming of the Messiah. They were waiting for the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. They longed for David's king to come who would restore them. And that is fulfilled in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, fulfilled in his incarnation, fulfilled in the one who was descended from David according to the flesh. But also the people of God, the church, you and I, we have not been resurrected yet. We have the promise of resurrection. We have Christ who has been resurrected and we still wait patiently for that day. And so there is something here that encourages us as well. What we are in Christ, but what we await in Christ when he comes again. And so Hosea in Hosea six verses one through three prophesies about how the Lord will revive his people. The people have gone into exile for the prophecy of it, but God is going to revive them. God is going to bring them back from the dead in verses 1 through 3. That is his promise with what we see. And we'll look at this prophecy under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see a people who return to the Lord in verses 1 and 2. And secondly, we'll see a people who know the Lord in verse 3. So a people who return to the Lord, verses 1 and 2 than a people who know the Lord in verse 3. So let's first look at a people who return to the Lord in verses 1 and 2. And again, it's in the context of the nation's spiritual ignorance, their adultery, but also their ignorance. They think 
that they can just worship any God and that if they just have any God that they worship, they're going to get good things from whatever God that they worship. They're just trying to cover all their bases. We need to worship Yahweh, but Baal seems to be giving that nation some good things and Molech seems to be providing for that nation. Let's just bring them all together and engage in syncretistic worship. But Yahweh is a jealous God. Yahweh requires exclusive worship. And so the people, Yahweh prophesies, this is what's going to happen. Judgment is on its way. Here's what's going to occur. The people are still going to try and seek Yahweh. But they're not going to do, through, do it by faith. They're going to do it in order to get things from God. And the things that they're going to use will actually be reversed against them. And there's going to be political downfall. It's not just the northern kingdom, Israel, but Judah. There was hope in Judah. There were some good kings in Judah. And thankfully, the hope eventually does come from the line of the tribe of Judah. But Judah is also going to go into captivity as well. It is because Israel will violate and has violated many times the terms of the old covenant that we see in the book of Deuteronomy. And so there is a time of great instability. Israel and Ephraim and uh, Judah. Uh, Ephraim is just uh, another way of saying uh, um, Israel. It's the dominant tribe in the northern kingdom. Verse 13 of chapter 5. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, he's going to go to Assyria. He's going to go to the big bad emperor of that time, the big bad country, the one who rules all things. And what's going to happen? He cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. The people are looking for help in everything but Yahweh. They're looking for help in everyone but the true and living God and the one who can give them the help that they need. And what makes verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6 so encouraging is that Israel is not looking for God. They're looking for everything else. They might come to God, but they're not going to come on his terms. They don't know the Lord, but yet Yahweh is going to be the one who brings revival. Yahweh is going to bring the one who brings restoration. And that is exactly what we see in verses 1 through 3. And I do think verses 1 through 3 is looking past exile. It's looking past the time when the people will be afflicted. And in that affliction of exile, they will earnestly seek me. So Israel goes into captivity in 722, Judah in 586. Uh, they return in around 538. That's the first return under Zerubbabel. No, that's actually uh, the prophecy of uh, Jeremiah. Eventually they return under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah in Ezra, Nehemiah. But they're still waiting for a king. They're still waiting for David's throne to be restored. And that comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's go back to the prophecy in verse 1. Notice, come and let us return to the Lord. It is only in the Lord. It is only in that covenant name. It is only in Yahweh. There has been mentioned uh, often, Hosea has used the term God. We believe in the one true and living God, but what distinguishes Yahweh from the other gods, not that there are other gods, but as they're dealing with the gods of the other nations, Yahweh is the covenant-keeping God. Yahweh appeared to Israel, appeared to Moses, and said, I am who I am. I am the one who will keep my promises. And so the one that they have sinned against, the one in whom they rejected, they went after Assyria. God is the one who says, come and let us return to the Lord. It is Hosea prophesying about a time when they can come and return to the Lord. And that will be in that new covenant era when that happens. There's going to be a change of mind in that new covenant era. 
That's what repentance is. It is a change of mind concerning sin and regarding God. It's a change of mind. We see the fruits of repentance by turning to God, but it's a change of mind concerning sin and the things of God. And they need that, don't they? They think God is just there to give them all they want. They think if they worship God in this way or that way, that they're going to get all that they need. But God is the one who explains and has dictated and shown how it is he wishes to be worshipped. And so he shows them their sin, but he also provides the way forward, the way of restoration. Come and let us return to the Lord. Israel awaited this. The people longed for, the remnant people longed for this time when they can return to the Lord. So it's a charge. Come, let us return to the Lord just as they went, same word, to Assyria. Now we see that they can come and return to the Lord their God. The one whom they rebelled against, the one whom they hated, the one whom they despised, yet there is forgiveness and salvation in him, but it will come according to the terms of the new covenant. And notice the reason one can return to the Lord is because of the God who revives. We see that in verse 1 and in verse 2. And notice there's a lot of connection with that lion language from verses, verse 14. In verse 14, God says, I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I will tear them. God is using um, uh, Assyria, or God uses Assyria, and God uses Babylon for uh, judgment, but it is God who is bringing judgment upon them. But he tears. I will tear them and go away. I will take them away, and no one shall rescue. But notice what is said in verse 1. Why can we return to the Lord? What is the reason for? He has torn, but he will heal. He has stricken, but he will will bind us up. God is the one who brings judgment, but God is the one who brings restoration. God is the one who brings salvation. God is the one who brings forgiveness for an undeserving, wretched people. He has torn, but he will heal. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. There is a similar prophecy in Deuteronomy 32 in that song of Moses, as he talks about the avenging God, he does say in verse 39 of Deuteronomy 32, Now see that I, even I, am he. And there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, As I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my sorrows drunk with blood or arrows, sorrow, arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. And he goes on to say, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and for his people. There is no God like our God. There is no God like the God of Israel at this time. He tears and he heals. And notice how he is going to heal or when he is going to heal. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, though we may live in his sight. The language of two and three, talking about the third day, 
The point is, is it's going to be swift. There is a comfort, isn't there, for the remnant. Remember we said last time, the remnant, the true people of God, the true worshipers of Yahweh, even in the face of all the debauchery and all of the adultery and the, all, of idol, all the idolatry, they still worship the one true God. But they're going to have to go through exile with the people. Remember, God made a covenant with the people of Israel. And as the people of Israel and that nation violates that covenant, he, God sends them into captivity as judgment. So the remnant has to go through all of that. And so God gives comforting words to the remnant, doesn't he? You're going to go into exile, but two days uh, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. After exile, there is going to be revival. Though we were dead, we shall live because the Lord is going to make us alive. And the comfort is death and exile won't be long. Now, exile lasts around, what, 70-ish years, something like that, a little bit less than that. That is quite a long time, isn't it, for us? But remember, God says, two, after two days, he'll revive, and three days, on the third day, he will raise us up. Remember, even, too, as we await Christ coming again, and we, as we await that final day, that's when Peter says a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. It might seem like a long time to us, but a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. The point is God is coming back swiftly. We think 2000 years is long, but he's going to come back swiftly, just like he's going to revive swiftly, just like he is going to heal swiftly. And he's going to do it according to his Timing. It'll be that third day he will raise us up. Now, there is certainly some connection with Jonah, Jonah being in the belly of the beast. And our Lord Jesus applies that to his dying and rising again, that sign, the sign of his resurrection, the sign of his of, of his triumph overall. And uh, um, uh, that he is the one who reigns supreme. But here we do see the third day he will raise us up. We see this reference to resurrection. Now, again, there isn't a lot on third day as far as being raised up. In fact, there's nothing except from Hosea 6. But there is some talk about resurrection. We certainly see that in Job 14, 7 through 14. Job understands in all his affliction and all his trial and all that he's going through. Never understands and never knows why he's going through what he's going through. God never tells him why he is enduring the things that he's enduring. We know that. But he says, for there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, that it will sprout again and that its tender shoots will not cease. Though its roots may grow old in the earth and its stump may die in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. If a man dies and is laid away, indeed he breathes his last, and where is he? As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise. Till the heavens are no more, they will not awake, nor be roused from their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. Job understood something of that very idea, that they would be resurrected. 16.8 of, of Psalm 16.8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not 
be moved. And we know that is, that is also applied to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But there is some understanding of resurrection. And we see that very clearly here in Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. So God is going to revive. God is going to heal. And notice the purpose for this revival, that we might live in his sight. Verse 2, that we might live in his sight. Remember the flow of the Old Covenant, especially in the book of Leviticus. Why are there all those sacrifices that they have to do? And why is there that purity system, the ceremonial laws? Why is it that they have to wash themselves all the time? Well, sacrifices are how we approach unto God. The ritual washings are how they walk and live with the Lord. What is the purpose, dear brethren, of God's salvation? It's that we might live with God and dwell with him forever. And how is it that we can have communion and walk with God? Well, we approach unto God through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we walk in the cleansing that is found in him, and we walk in his ways. We've seen that in the book of 1 John, especially in chapter 1, when he talks about how God is light, and if we are in the light, we shall walk in the light just as he is in the light. We talks about how if we've sinned, The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sin. If we sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Why? Because as has been prayed and as we looked at this morning, we have an advocate. We have a high priest. We have one who is that sacrifice for his people. And as we, uh, we approach God through Christ, we have been cleansed in his blood. We have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And we can then walk in a way that is pleasing unto him. Pursuing knowledge, honoring the Lord God most high as the children of God. Not perfectly, but yet we can do so as the people of God. The old covenant, they were supposed to walk with the Lord. They failed. Christ does not fail that we who are undeserving might be able to walk with God. And remember, what was man's purpose in this world when God created man? It was to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Adam, that first man, broke and transgressed the covenant, which if you look at chapter 6, verse 7, but like men, I think it should say like Adam, they, just as Adam transgressed the covenant, so too did Israel transgress that covenant as well. And Adam severed that communion with God. God saves Israel. I'll walk with you. Here's how you walk with me. And they sever it by their wickedness. God is still very patient with them, by the way. And then we have Christ who has come that through Christ, we have communion with God almighty and we shall live with him. And brethren, we live with him now. We experience the power of the resurrection now, but we long for the actual resurrection of our bodies. And thankfully, this fulfillment of what we see in verse 2 comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a few New Testament passages that speak about according to the scriptures. Which scriptures, dear brethren? Certainly Psalm 22 can be in view and other Psalm 16 can be in view. But we certainly see in 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul unpacks and describes the importance of the resurrection from the dead. And he says in verse 4, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. 
What scriptures? Hosea 6. Or we see later on Jesus speaking to his disciples in Luke chapter 24, verse 46. We see it is, again, that third day. Thus it is written... And thus it was necessary from the dead, uh, necessary for the, for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. There is this prophecy in Hosea, although the Old Testament saints wouldn't have known it in its fullness. But yet here comes Christ and he unpacks what that means. Would that have been a glorious day on the road to Emmaus? You don't understand everything as a disciple. Here's the resurrected Christ. As it says, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Here's Jesus himself opening up what the Old Testament points to. And the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. Listen to Henry. Let us see and admire the wisdom and goodness of God in ordering the prophet's words that when he foretold the deliverance of the church out of her troubles, he should at the same time point out our salvation by Christ, which other salvations were both figures and fruits of. And though they might not be aware of this mystery in the words, yet now they are fulfilled in the letter of them in the resurrection of Christ. It is a confirmation to our faith that this is he that should come, and we are to look for no other. When Jesus comes, he suffers in the stead of a wretched people. He dies, is buried, and he is raised on that third day. He's talking about the first coming of our Lord to bring the restoration, to bring the revival, to bring the salvation that the people of God need. That we might say with Paul, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And though we might die, 2 Corinthians 5, though we might put off this earthly, earthly tent, which is our bodies, our earthly bodies, we have a heavenly body that awaits the people of God in Jesus Christ. Just as he came one time, he shall come again. When he came the first time, he inaugurated the new creation. We long for his coming again to consummate the new creation when he comes. Cyril of Alexandria has something similar, says something similar to Henry. He says, and since one died for all, we live his life. We live his life. We live our life in him. No longer placed outside God's vision as a result of the fall, nor cast behind him as a result of the sin. Instead, we are now admitted to his sight and have the right to speak freely to him on account of righteousness in Christ because of the resurrection of our Lord. That's another doctrine I think we hear all the time and we celebrate every week. But brethren, we should never grow tired of hearing about it. We should always appreciate, always be in awe, always be in wonder that Christ has been raised from the dead. We've been raised with him and we shall be raised with him when he comes again that last day. I mean, the whole point of this prophecy is to point us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and recognize where our hope comes from. Isn't that the point? That is practical. Everybody thinks practical is just here's a list of what I need to do. Here it is. Marvel at Christ. Behold your Christ. Recognize your Christ. Love your Christ. Gaze at your Christ by faith that you might gaze upon him when he comes again. 
That is what he wants us to see, a people who return to the Lord and the people who return to the Lord return in Christ Jesus. And he gives us all the benefits that we need. So that is a people who return to the Lord, verses 1 and 2. Let's then look secondly at a people who know the Lord in verse 3. So there's one charge, come, return to the Lord. And after you've returned to the Lord by faith, notice verse 3, let us know him. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. What was the problem in Hosea 4 and 5? The people did not know the Lord. And this knowledge here refers to that covenantal understanding, a theological understanding of who God is. And the people, as we have said, as I have said, as many writers have said, were not honoring him. We see in verse 6 of Hosea 4, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected Knowledge. Also, I will reject you from being priest for me because you have forgotten the law of your God. Knowledge is important, isn't it? To know the true and living God. Isn't that what eternal life is according to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? He says, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The problem here is Israel thought they knew God, but what is... God saying to them, they don't know me at all. They reject me for lack of knowledge. Therefore, I will reject you. They did not listen to the word of God. They did not lay hold of the promises of God. They did not lay hold to those promises of the old covenant. Now, the old covenant is all about life in the land. Salvation is never held out in the terms of the old covenant. The types and shadows point ahead to the Lord and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The, the blood of bulls and goats point to him. The kings, the Davidic king points to him. The, uh, the, the exodus points to him. Everything about the Old Testament points to him. That's important, right? What's the Old Testament about? Jesus is what it is about. And so even the Old Covenant people, they should have... Uh, um, the true saints saw that. The true saints believed. The true saints looked ahead to Christ to come. But according to the terms of this old covenant, God said, you do what I say, you'll have good things. Right? But if you don't do what I say, bad things are going to happen. It was a covenant of works. Do what I say, good things will happen. Don't do what I say, bad things will happen. That's why we don't want any sort of terms according to the old covenant, right? Because A, salvation is not held out in its works. That's why we need the new covenant, which is a covenant of grace. We don't do anything. Christ does it for us, and we lay hold of him. Here is salvation. Here is communion with God, and it's in Jesus Christ if you believe upon him. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that a comforting thing that this covenant can never be broken, according to Jeremiah 31? And the beautiful thing is it's not external, but internal. It's the internal working of God in the hearts and lives of his people. Ezekiel 36, and in the prophesy, prophecy concerning the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. Again, he's speaking and using old covenant language to describe new covenant realities, brethren. We use the New Testament to interpret the old. That's why I really like the old writers, the old boys. 
In our modern context, we can get some good things from modern commentaries. They're all about the historical grammatical method of interpretation, which is not bad. What's the history? What's the grammar? What's the context? What is the human author trying to say? Those aren't bad things. But you can't stop there. You have to go to what the divine author is trying to say and how the divine author puts his words, puts his Bible together. And that's why you have to use the new to interpret the old. And that's why you can't understand the new without the old. We have to have both of them. And so you see the glory and the the blessing of the new covenant when you contrast it with the old. It's not going to be like the old which they broke. It's not going to be like the old which they broke. But the new covenant shall never be broken. If you believed on Christ, those who are Christ, you have assurance you are the people of God. And the people of God, the new covenant people, they shall know him. And notice they shall pursue the knowledge of the Lord. They shall press on in this blessed knowledge. Brethren, knowledge is important, right? Some people don't like doctrine. Some people scoff at that idea. It's not about our head. It's more about our heart, that sort of thing. You all know how that much that drives me nuts. Because when we think about the makeup of our souls, what are the powers or faculties God has endowed to our souls? Mind and will. And what happens first? You hear something, you see something, you start to think about that with your mind, and then you either desire it or don't desire it, and then... The mind with the will chooses that thing or does not choose that very thing. But everything starts with the mind, doesn't it? We hear something, we deliberate, we ponder that thing. That's why we need knowledge. We need the truth. And we need that saving knowledge, that heavenly knowledge, that blessed theology to know the one true God. And we do it by reading scripture. We do it by the power of the spirit. We do it through prayer. We do it through contemplation. I know people don't like that word contemplation. You know what it means, brethren? Just resting in the intelligible truth. Being assured of the intelligible truth. Christ died for my sins. Contemplating that. Pondering that. Communing with, communing with God in God's word. Shouldn't we want that as the people of God? And remember, right doctrine then hopefully ought to lead to right practice. So if there's another application you should take away today... Go read good stuff. Go read good theology. Go read the old boys. Go read our dead friends. Go read people I can tell you you, uh, you should read. I can give you a list if you'd like. But read good stuff and read God's word and do so standing on the shoulders of giants who came before us. But we need to grow in it. Grow in our understanding. Grow in who, under, knowing who God is and what he has done. Knowing in what pleases God. The people of Israel are like... I just get rain from heaven and I can have money to do good things. They didn't care about actually honoring and glorifying God in that pursuit of that blessed knowledge of God. Most high instead, they were pursuing the Baals. Hosea 2 verse 7. But in that new covenant, let us know and let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. And then notice as uh, we begin to come to a close in verse 3 at the end there, a sure promise of his return. Uses the language of like the morning, uses the language of like rain, latter and former rain. And notice he says, his going forth is established as the morning. Just as we wake up tomorrow, well, 
I might not wake up tomorrow, but just as the sun rises tomorrow, dear brethren, that is sure, just as that shall and most likely will happen as it happens every day, so too shall God fulfill his promises. And he did in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us that assurance. Again, that remnant needs to hear that not all is lost. The sun shall rise. Now we could draw out some redemptive historical um, imagery here as well. The old covenant is like darkness. It's the morning. John the Baptist is when it begins to dawn, dear brethren. That last of the old covenant prophets, he comes, he's speaking and preparing the way of the Lord. And then Jesus comes and it's about between 9 to 12 p.m. The light is shining. There it is. And then the apostles come 3 p.m. and Pentecost 3 p.m. And then the things that Christ has done are explained by the apostles that he has set apart. You see how that image helps us understand the flow of the Bible. The old darkness There is glimmers of hope, there's glimmers of light, and then as John the Baptist comes on the scene, we do begin to see the rising of the sun of righteousness. And that is the language we see in Malachi 4, we see this language in Isaiah 58, but especially Malachi 4 with the promise of the Elijah to come. So just as the morning, so too is his going forth. And notice, he will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. Why does he mention rain and the latter and former rain here? It's to highlight the refreshment that people need after a drought. We don't like the rain here, although it's really hot and it was really hot for a long time. And I was excited when it rained for the first time in forever. But brethren, we ought to appreciate the rain, especially for an agrarian society. They needed that rain, did they not? They need that rain for the blessing. They need that rain for their crops to grow. They need that rain to refresh them. And after desolation, after drought, after being parched, well, here comes one like the rain to refresh his people. And he goes on to further describe that, like the latter and the former rain to the earth. The former rain is when the rain first comes, refers to that refreshment needed after a long period of drought, but that latter rain refers to the time of mature crop and bountiful harvest. We get the refreshment that we need, but then we can grow in the things of God. And brethren, this is also a use of prophetic idiom. The language of latter and former rain is used in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 11 to describe the blessings that Israel would receive if they did what Yahweh said. And so he's taking that imagery, blessings, refreshment, and he's applying it to the new covenant setting. We read Joel 2 at the outset for a reason. As Joel prophesies about restoration, as Joel prophesies about return, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Don't be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully. And he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain, in the first month. The, fre- uh, the threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine. And oh, he's talking about restoration. We go on to see in verse 28 of Joel 2, that is then applied to the day of Pentecost. That restoration, that outpouring, that new creation that comes. And even this language of 
latter rain, former rain, is descriptive of that new creation, that new covenant setting, that new covenant type of language. It's also in Zechariah 10 and Jeremiah 5 as well, but this is meant to be a comfort for the people of God. It's meant to be an encouragement for the people of God to recognize where our blessings and where our hope and where our strength lies, especially as we wait. We have to do a lot of waiting, don't we? We don't like to wait, but brethren, we're still waiting for Christ to come back. And as we wait patiently, we do so like the farmer who longs for the former and latter rain. I don't think it's any, uh, it's no small thing that James in James 5 uses this imagery. He talks about how we shouldn't boast about tomorrow because our life is but a vapor. That's encouraging, especially with the world around us. He talks about how the rich uh, are going to weep and howl. They corrupt and they, their gold is going to corrode. The things that they have will not last. But the people of God, verse 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. What are we supposed to do until Jesus comes back, dear brethren? Sell all our things, get fanatical about when he's coming back, trying to read the times and determine. Be patient, dear brethren. Live your life until he comes back. Pursue knowledge, love your family, engage in your jobs. That's what we are supposed to do until Christ comes back, to wait patiently for him wait patiently brethren until the coming of the lord see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain now i know he's using that as an example but don't miss again the language early and latter rain that is used in joel used in hosea used in jeremiah used in Zechariah, and used in Deuteronomy. You see, brethren, we truly actually are waiting for the latter rain in its fullness. We have Christ who has come. We have, been, we have the promise of revival, the promise of resurrection from the dead. But we are waiting for the fullness to come in. We are waiting for that mature crop. We are waiting for there to be no more sin, no more sorrow, and no more suffering. We are waiting like the remnant. And that is why... Peter calls us exiles for a reason. This world is not our home. We are a people in exile, but thankfully the fulfillment of Hosea 6 has already come. And Jesus Christ in his first coming, and just as he has come the first time, he will come again a second time, dear brethren. That is something that we cling to. That is the hope that we have, the promise of resurrection. We are alive in Christ now, we have the down payment of the Holy Spirit. Our hearts have been changed, but we long for our bodies to be resurrected. Our bodies to be changed. We long for that time where he comes again. We long for that resurrection from the dead. And we'll close with John 6, 40. Earlier, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father draws me. And all those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. But then in John 6, 40, he says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
That is the assurance that we have. We shall be resurrected on that last day for those who believed in Christ. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, when we hear difficult rebukes and when we hear serious exhortations, we are thankful for the assurances that you do give to your people. Thank you for the prophecies of the Old Testament that point ahead to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you what the Old Testament saints, what the prophets long to see, uh, we have seen in Christ by faith. Thank you that he has come. Thank you that he took on human flesh. Thank you that he is like us in every way, yet without sin. Thank you for the perfect life that he lived. Thank you for his suffering. Thank you for his dying. Thank you for his burial. Thank you that he has been resurrected on that third day. And thank you that this is a fulfillment of Hosea 6. This is the encouragement and comfort that a people uh, who have been desolate, who have been dead, need to be reminded of. Who our Christ is, what he has done for us. And we are thankful, O Lord, for that return. We are thankful for faith. We are thankful for coming to you. And you're the one who revives your people. So we pray if there are any here today who do not know you, please revive their hearts. Please resurrect their hearts. Please uh, give them a new heart. And we pray that you'd give them the gifts of faith and repentance that they might turn to you, the true and living God. And we also pray, O Lord, for your saints, that we would be a people who loves to pursue knowledge of you that we would love to speak to you according to your will, that we would love to pray to you, that we would love to read your word, that we would love to read good theology, that we would love to read about men of old and love to read what men of old thought of you. Thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Thank you for the 2,000 years of Christ's power that we have seen in your church. We thank you, O oh God, that uh, a day with you is like a thousand, or a thousand years is like a day with you. May that be a comfort for us as we wait. And we pray you'd help us to wait patiently. And as we do so, help us to do so with the assurance and comfort uh, that we need. Just as Christ has come, just as Christ has worked in our hearts by the Spirit, we also are assured that Christ shall resurrect our bodies on that last day. So help us to walk with that hope. Help us to walk with that encouragement. Help us to walk as we make our way to that celestial city and give us the comfort and encouragement that your people need as people who are exiles in the land. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ.